Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast, an oral history of pro and college football. This episode, George Toma, the head groundskeeper for every Super Bowl. Hello, and welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm Jackson Michael, author of the book, The Game Before the Money, published by the University of Nebraska Press. That is an oral history of pro and college football, featuring interviews with 40 former pro and college stars whose pro careers started between the 1930s and 1970s. That work continues on this podcast, and in this episode, We have a man with a very special place in football history, and he has likely played an important part of many of your favorite NFL memories, even though you might not know about him. His name is George Toma. His football groundskeeping roots date all the way back to the American Football League, and he has been the groundskeeper at every single Super Bowl, from Super Bowl I through Super Bowl 55. He generously shared incredible stories about some of the NFL's greatest moments for the game before the money. Some of those stories will be in this episode and some will be in future episodes. I wanted to focus a fair amount of this episode on Mr. Toma himself so that those of you who aren't familiar with him will get to know him a little bit. He's a man that really every sports fan should know about. He's not only been responsible for the turf at the Super Bowl, but also the Olympics and the World Cup. He additionally has a long history in baseball. He worked for the Kansas City A's and the Kansas City Royals. And the first few minutes of the show will focus on his early groundskeeping career, which was in baseball before jumping into his time with the Kansas City Chiefs and the early Super Bowls. George Thomas' pro football turf career started in Kansas City with the American Football League, working for Lamar Hunt after Hunt moved his franchise from Dallas to Kansas City. George Toma is truly world-class in what he does, and he's done some seemingly miraculous things to get fields in condition for major sporting events. He's also a wonderful man to speak with, And I know that all of you are going to greatly enjoy the chance to hear George Toma share about his background and his experiences around some of the greatest moments in football history. George was born in 1929 in Pennsylvania. He said his love of sports started at a young age. I'm from the coal mines of Pennsylvania, Wilkesboro, Scranton area. Everybody was poor. Our baseballs were taped up. Our bats were nailed together, and we played in any little flat spot we had in the hills and coal mines of Pennsylvania. Maybe our football was a stock and filled with rags, and our parents, the coal miners, came home. They had dinner. They sat on the porch, and they watched us play, and we always had a good time. Out of the valley where I'm from, Scranton, Wilkesboro, Wyoming Valley, A lot of great athletes came from that area. The Pennsylvania coal mining life was rugged. George's father passed away while George was quite young. 
George describes the hard scrabble Pennsylvania coal mines, his father's death, and the first job that he worked while his mother and sister worked in a bakery. I was born in the coal mines of Pennsylvania, northeastern anthracite region where everybody is uh, very poor. And uh, people don't believe me when you were eight years old, you were working in the mines already. And a lot of the young boys that were working in the mines eight years, nine years, ten years, were killed not only by rock slides, but they're mostly the leaders that were leading the mules, pulling the car coals out of the mines and getting kicked and things like that. So when I was 10 years old, my father died of anthracylicosis, which is black lung disease, from working in the mines. So I had to get a job, but being 10 years old, no way was I going to work in the mines. So my first job I got was on a vegetable farm, only about two miles from where I lived. On the farm, we were worked 10 hours a day. We got 10 cents an hour, and then we worked six days a week. So when I was 11 years old, I got a job on a chicken farm where I got 50 cents a day in lunch, but the farmer was very good to me and he taught me a lot. Every Saturday he would say, go kill two chickens and carry all the eggs and vegetables you can carry. Thomas says that he got started in groundskeeping through one of his neighbors. Then when I was 12 years old, our neighbor up the street was the head groundkeeper for the Wilkesboro Barons. And that was in 1942, and that was a farm club for the Cleveland Indians. I can remember they had excellent players, you know, Bob Lemon was one of the pitchers. Bob Boone was a catcher, and everything went good, and so I got a job. His name was Stanley Sheckler, and he treated me just like a son. He took good care of me, and uh, I went to work for him when I was 12 years old working around Artillery Park, which was named after the 109th Artillery because in left field and center field there was a large, huge armory, and they still had the old-type caissons, and they had horses at that time to pull those caissons. And uh, so one worked at Artillery Park in 1942, and then in the wintertime I helped deliver milk with a horse and wagon, and the horse was smarter than I was. He knew where to stop to drop the milk off. George kept working at the ballpark. Meanwhile, Bill Vack bought the Cleveland Indians and developed an agreement and renamed the minor league team the Indians after the big league club. George graduated from high school at age 16 and moved up to head groundskeeper while his neighbor took over as head trainer. Toma was sent to build some minor league spring training fields with Cleveland's head groundskeeper, Emil Bossard, a man George considers to be the greatest groundskeeper of all time. Toma traveled to build fields in Virginia and Florida. He shared an interesting story about some fields in Florida. Then in 1950, we went to Daytona Beach and built six fields on Daytona Beach. Fields were named after famous Cleveland Indians players, Tris Speaker, so forth, all the way down the line. And today, where those six fields are, is the Daytona 500 racetrack. 
George worked the 1950 season in Wilkes-Barre. He was drafted into the military in December of 1950 and fought in the Korean War. He returned in 1953 and continued to work in minor league baseball. He worked in Buffalo and Charleston for AAA teams associated with the Detroit Tigers. In 1957, he was offered two opportunities. One was to work for Major League Baseball's Kansas City A's, and the other was to stay at the AAA level with the Denver Bears. Toma took a trip to visit both fields. He said the field in Denver was in beautiful shape. The field in Kansas City, however, wasn't up to par. It was on Labor Day, and looking at the field, it was a mess. And the ball players would also come out early and pick out the crabgrass and the crowfoot and the weeds from the infield. George had a choice to work on a beautiful field or a shabby field. He chose the shabby field in Kansas City because if he screwed up, he said nobody would be able to tell. George talks about his first season in Kansas City. Early spring, it was all weeds, so I had to take a herbicide and kill the weeds. So I killed the weeds. There was more brown grass, the weeds being dead, than green grass. And the sports riders were on me pretty heavy. He said, look at that field. He says, ship them back to the miners. They were on me pretty good. That was in May, June. Then I seeded it with common Bermuda seed. Uh, in those days, it was cheap. It was 35 cents a pound. And by 4th of July, I had an oasis in the desert. And we had a beautiful baseball field. And... Already other clubs were asking me would I consider going to join them. Toma's groundskeeping team was a group of kids from two nearby high schools, Lincoln High School and Central High School. He gives them a lot of credit for his own success. They were so good. They dragged that infield and changed the bases and do a little dance at second base in 28 seconds and it was like a pool table. In fact, it's better than some of the major league teams today that drag their infield. They could put the tarp down in 45 seconds. Mel Allen used to time him and he said they should be in the Olympics rather than on the ground crew. In 1963, Lamar Hunt moved the American Football League Dallas Texans to Kansas City. The team was renamed the Chiefs and shared the same stadium with baseball's Kansas City A's, owned by another famous sports team owner, Charlie Finley. So Toma now had to have the field ready for both baseball and football, in addition to soccer. He said there were also concerts and religious events held at Kansas City's Municipal Stadium. Now we had Kansas City Chiefs football, and then we had uh, Kansas City soccer, and then we had the Beatles concert and all kind of concerts, Billy Gray and... Uh, uh, events and all kind of religious events and all the time in those years we didn't resaw that field one time in all those years and they said we had the best baseball field in baseball that we had the best football field in both football and Pele said it was the second best field he played on the only one that beat us was the one in Wembley in England, and we had the best fields in all their sports, and we never resodded the field. It was lucky from football to baseball. 
if we spent $500 to get the field ready. During the summer of 1966, the American Football League and National Football League announced a merger. To this day, both the AFL and NFL have hardy fans who like to debate which league was better. NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle visited Kansas City in November of 1966 and watched a regular season game between the Chiefs and the Boston Patriots, which ended up in a tie. George tells us what Roselle said in the post-game press conference after he was asked to compare the two leagues. Pete Roselle came to town Sunday before Thanksgiving. They had a press conference after the game, and the press and TV people asked him, what's the difference between the AFL and the NFL? He said he didn't see too much difference in the play, but he never seen such a beautiful, outstanding, well-kept playing field. He said, Mr. Hunt must have a good groundkeeper. Word didn't travel as quickly back then as it does today with social media. However, word on George Toma's skills traveled quickly enough through newspapers in those days that Dallas Cowboys general manager Tex Schramm picked up the phone as quickly as he could to hire George. So Monday, Dad hit the, the wires, and Tex Schramm called Jack Stedman, the general manager of the Chiefs, and wanted to borrow me that week. It was a week of Thanksgiving to get the Cotton Bowl ready for a color televised game between the Cleveland Browns and the Cowboys. So I went down there and got that done. Before that game, Dallas head coach Tom Landry said that the game against the Browns was the most important game the Cowboys had played since entering the NFL. The team trusted the field at the Cotton Bowl to George Toma. I compared video of the Cowboys' previous home game against Pittsburgh in 1966 with the footage of the Thanksgiving game against Cleveland. The field for the Thanksgiving game featured the Cowboys' star logo painted in the end zones, along with the team name. That was absent in the previous home game, where the end zone simply had white lines painted within it. Gauging by the video that I've seen from previous seasons, that Thanksgiving game might have been the first time that the Cowboys' star logo was painted in the end zone for a home game, in addition to the team's name. Toma also added a great deal of color on the playing field itself, a blue D with a gray background at midfield, along with alternating colors of blue and orange outlining the yardage markers every five yards at the 20, the 25, and the 30, and so on. The Cowboys star logo was also painted on the 40-yard lines. It's worth pointing out that colorful field paint is one thing that we see every Sunday, but George Toma was a pioneer in that regard in pro football, and you see his influence on the field in every game. Dallas defeated Cleveland on Thanksgiving and beat the St. Louis Cardinals the following week en route to winning the NFL's East Division. Dallas hosted the 1966 NFL Championship game at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. Once again, George Toma got the call. They invited me to do the job to get the field ready for the championship game, which was being held at the Cotton Bowl between the Cowboys and the Packers. 
but what we had there, we had a tough time, but we got the job done. On Saturday, there was the New Year's Day game at the Cotton Bowl, and the Cotton Bowl, and uh, we had to get the field ready for the Cotton Bowl. I believe it was Georgia and SMU, and we had to work all night to change the field over from the Cotton Bowl to the championship game between the Cowboys and the Packers, and uh, it was a tough night because we had to change all the end zones, things like that, and the fogs came in. So early that next morning, I had to get some helicopters to help dry the end zones. Now, that's an amazing story in itself. Toma needed to change over the field from the Cotton Bowl between SMU and Georgia, which kicked off at 1.30 p.m. the previous day, and get it ready in time for the NFL championship game, which kicked off at 3 p.m. the next day. Considering that the Cotton Bowl probably lasted well past 3 p.m., that gave George less than 24 hours to get the field ready for the NFL championship game. A time crunch that forced him to use helicopters to help dry the paint on the field faster. The Packers defeated the Cowboys by seven points in the 1966 NFL championship game. That game came down to a last-second goal line stand by the Packers, which you can learn about in episode 44 of the Game Before the Money podcast. Great defensive plays that won championships. Green Bay's victory in the NFL championship game launched them into Super Bowl I against the Kansas City Chiefs at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. George Toma also earned a spot for that game as well in charge of the field. Invited me to do the first Super Bowl game in the Coliseum, and we only had five days, and they only had five men. And I still have a trunk in my restroom that is about three feet by four feet, and that's all the equipment I had for that game. And today we have two tractor trailer fulls of equipment, and we only had five men, and we got the job done. Now, on Super Bowl Sunday, one of the first exciting things to happen is when you first see the field on your television screen. I know I always look forward to seeing how the end zones are painted, as well as what is painted at the 50-yard line. George tells us the story of the 50-yard line design for Super Bowl One. So I asked Commissioner, what does he want on the 50-yard line? He said, George, whatever you want, you put there. So... I made a football with a crown on it and then had AFC on one side and NFC on the other. Toma knows the backstory to a lot of behind-the-scenes Super Bowl moments. After all, he was there. He shares one about Super Bowl One and how the five-man crew came through at the last minute. Well, actually, the first Super Bowl was a tough one because I didn't get out there to Monday and... There was only a week before the Super Bowl, so they had five men on the crew, and we worked together and got the job done. We couldn't do much to the grass, but roll the field and cut it and things like that. And we ran out of paint late in the night, so we had to go to the L.A. arena and get some hockey paint. That's all they had to finish the job. You heard Toma mention earlier 
that the amount of equipment used to get ready for Super Bowl one fit inside a three foot by four foot trunk. And now that inventory has grown into two tractor trailers full. He also mentioned how much the cost has gone up to get ready for the big game. In our early days of the Super Bowl, say the first 15, 16 Super Bowls, if we spent 500 to $1,000 to get a field ready for Super Bowl, we were lucky. Today, we're spending maybe $700,000 getting the field ready for Super Bowl. Getting to chat with George and getting to know a little bit about him shows that a lot goes into the Super Bowl behind the scenes of the game. George Toma is a man who's played an integral part of Super Bowl history, and even the most ardent football fans might not know his name or know that the same man has taken care of the field for every single Super Bowl. Toma is quick to share credit, and he mentioned another person who played a large role in the Super Bowl for a long time. His name is Jim Steig. I was asked by Pete Rosell and then Paul Tagliabue and then Roger Goodell to do the Super Bowls, but the man that really ran the Super Bowls for 25, 30 years was Jim Steig. And he was the vice president of special events, and he treated me like a son. And he had uh, one or two assistants, and they ran everything from parking to hotels to transportation to the fields, the second clocks, yard lines, practice fields. And he was a one-man show. The Jim Steegs, the George Tomas, people you may not ever hear about, but are affiliated with many, if not all, of your favorite Super Bowl memories. Think about it. Every single Super Bowl memory that you have, George Toma put together the field in which it happened. In some cases, you'll be surprised to learn the backstory of the hustling that went on to get things done before game day. But Toma and his crews made it seem so effortless that most fans don't even realize that there's a guy like Toma getting the field together. Perhaps the most important thing that needs to be right on Super Bowl Sunday is that playing surface. I asked Toma what some of his favorite Super Bowl memories are, and we're going to close this first episode with George Toma with a story from an early Super Bowl, Super Bowl IV. He shared many outstanding stories from later games as well, and we'll get to those in future episodes of the Game Before the Money podcast. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app to keep up. It's free to do. Super Bowl IV was played at Tulane Stadium in New Orleans between the Kansas City Chiefs and Minnesota Vikings. The Chiefs won that game 23-7. to George is going to literally take us onto the field, a field that needed a lot of work to get into shape. For Super Bowl IV, I had one assistant. He was a, a high school boy, Mike Walton from Lincoln High School. We only had a week, and the field was pretty well beat up. And it was a bad week. It was freezing, and the pipes were busting in the stadium at Tulane University. And there's a lot of wet spots, but they couldn't get sod in those days. And what I did, I took wood chips and sawdust and bark and put it in the wet spots and uh, helped out and painted it green. And the field looked pretty good. And I can still.
still see myself standing on the sideline and see Oldest Taylor running past me for a touchdown. George shared many fantastic stories about his time in the NFL, working Super Bowls, working the 1981 NFC Championship game, better known as the Catch Game, and so many other amazing moments that will be on future podcast episodes. But before we dug into some of those games with him, I wanted you to get to know a little bit about George Toma if you hadn't heard of him already. Because again, whether you know it or not, he was affiliated with all of your favorite Super Bowl memories. George Toma, however, is more than just about the Super Bowl and other big events he's worked at, such as the Olympics, the World Series, and the World Cup. Community and working with kids are big pieces of his life. There's a wiffle ball lee here they have in kansas city and the millionaire has a wiffle ball field in his front yard and they asked me two years ago can i spruce it up a little bit and they have a game where they donate the money to wounded veterans or veterans that want to commit suicide and they have this event like the kansas city chiefs would play the kansas city royals and the sporting news, the soccer team of Kansas City, they would play those games. And the first year, George Brett played in it and all these people, the first year they made $250,000 for these veterans that are hurting. Last year they surprised me and named the field George Toma, Whipple Ball Field. I, I really enjoyed fixing the field, and what I did, I used the eight, nine, ten-year-old kids, eleven-year-old kids in the neighborhood to spruce up the field because the owner lets them play on there, whether it's baseball, football, or anything. And had one ten-year-old girl that painted the lines for me. Working with the kids is very outstanding, and working, and then. I was sitting on the bench there taking a break and a man came by and he said, George, I appreciate what you're doing for this field and the tournament that they have for the benefit of the veterans. He says, it wasn't for the money that they gave. I wouldn't be here today. I would have committed a suicide. And he thanked me for helping him get the field ready for this big event so they could make money for the veterans. And $250,000 on one-day event, it was pretty good. And hoping this year with the coronavirus to go away that they can do the same. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. A special thanks to George Toma for interviewing for this episode. We'll have more George Toma stories in future episodes. We'll also have a member of the Super Bowl for Kansas City Chiefs, Bob Stein. We'll also have 49ers Hall of Fame linebacker Dave Wilcox and Stanford and Chicago Bears legend Bill McCall. Remember to visit thegamebeforethemoney.com where you can find great football history articles and transcriptions of some episodes of the Game Before the Money podcast. Transcriptions are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. It's S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai 
to learn more about their automated transcriptions.